You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our sermon this morning, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles first to Acts chapter 9, where we read about the activities of the early church, and especially in chapter 9 about the activity of the Lord Jesus Christ with His servant Paul. We read here about the calling of Paul by the Lord Jesus Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to stop persecuting him and to submit his life to his Lord and King. So Acts chapter 9, the verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul, later known as Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is, were followers of Jesus Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And then if you would, turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Chapter 3. We'll read the verses 7 through 16. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. 
I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. If on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 3, the verses 12 through 16. Let's read that through together again. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. If on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the art of debate, there's one little trick that you can use that seems like a really good one. Seems like it will win you a lot of points, might even sway some people over to your side. That is, usually until you actually use it. You set up your position, in contrast to another position, as the one that everyone in their right mind holds to. Everyone who's thought about the issue would agree with you, and it's only those who who don't even know what they're talking about. Those are the people who disagree with you. Anyone who's thought about this issue for more than two seconds would agree with me. You hear this sort of trick used by debaters of all kinds, whether politicians or talk show hosts or any others. They use this sort of thing. You hear it quite often. The problem is, after you use this technique, you usually come off sounding a little arrogant or insensitive to the other position. And so I'd ask you to look at verse 13 of our text this this morning. Sorry, that's verse 15. Verse 15 of our text this morning. And I ask you if this is the technique that Paul is trying to employ as he writes to the Philippians. All who are mature would take such a view of things. And of course, it's implied then that only the immature wouldn't think this. Is Paul trying to score some easy points with the Philippians? Is he trying to, through some trick of rhetoric, sway them over to his side? Well, it does sound like that, but I don't think that that's actually what Paul is doing. Rather, as he writes the Philippians, and he makes this point, 
He is being quite sincere and genuine. And he is teaching about what the proper view of the Christian life is. And he's saying, not trying to score easy points, but saying sincerely, those who are mature will think this way. They will hold this view. Those who who are mature will not only view their life in this way, but will live in this way. Look at verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. What's Paul talking about here? What is this view that the mature should hold? Well, he's saying that there's a certain focus, a certain single-mindedness with which the Christian carries out their life. They're focused on the goal. And they work toward that goal with zeal, all the while realizing that it's not their own power at work, but it's the power of Jesus Christ. And so I preach to you this morning under that theme that those who are mature should view their and live their life in Christ in a certain way. Those who are mature should view and live their life in Christ in a certain way. That is, hopefully, with an eye toward their hope, toward the prize, zealously and realistically. So, first then, we will see that those who are mature should view their life in Christ, hopefully. Now, we've started toward the end of our text, looking at verses 15 and 16 first, and having started in that vein, we'll continue on for the rest of the sermon, working our way up in our text, and we'll look first at verse 14. And this works because this verse concludes the previous verses and forms the substance of that view that Paul believes the Christian should take. So we're beginning at the end. But beginning at the end, I'd be, I think it'd be fair to say that we're saving the best for first. And that's in line with Jewish custom of those days. You remember when Jesus was at the wedding feast in Cana? They serve usually the best wine first. So the best that our text has is first. What Paul mentions in verse 14 is the very goal to which these verses are driving. And there's no pun intended there. You see, the goal is the goal. Paul says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Now, the prize is connected with the goal there, but it's not actually the goal. Anyone who's who's ever run a race knows that. The prize and the goal are two different things. You run to finish the end, the goal, but it's only after that that you win the prize. And so... The question that we have is, especially talking about this hope that Paul is working toward, is what is that prize? What is that prize? That's the real question here. And if you take a look at these verses, you notice that Paul doesn't come out and, and say what that prize is, at least not in verse 14. And so we're going to have to look into our Bibles a little bit to understand what this prize is that Paul's talking about. Now, I should say that if you have an ESV translation of the Bible or the NASB, the New American Standard Version, then you'll see that 
in those translations, the prize is defined by what follows. They have something like, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So it makes it appear as if the prize is the upward call of God. And so then our search would be over. The prize is then being called into heaven. The prize is the attainment and possession of heaven, the inheritance in store for us. But you'll notice that the NIV has a slightly different translation. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. And so you have the prize, and in the ESV, the prize is is that upward call. But in the NIV, the prize is that for which I have been called. So then the call comes before the prize, not after. So the question is, which one's right? How do we solve this issue? Well, I'm not going to go through all the various passages here, but if you were to look at the word call in the New Testament and see how Paul uses that word, you'd see that he uses that word consistently to speak about the initial call of God in the life of a Christian. The initial call of God toward faith, repentance, and obedience. And that call gets worked out in the lives of God's people. And so the context of Paul's use of the word call would argue it, would argue against the call being the prize and would argue in favor of what the NIV has here and that you are called toward the prize. The upward calling of God is something that for us has already begun. We have already received the call of God to win the prize. And so it's good to figure that out, but we're still left with a question that we had before. What is this prize? It's a little bit elusive in our text. Paul's pressing on toward the goal, but the goal is not the prize. The prize comes after the goal is attained. The prize is not the heavenward calling of God. Rather, the upward calling of God strives toward that goal. So what's the prize? Well, if you look in our text with me, then we have to go back, right? What's the prize? Well, Paul mentions it a few times. In verse 13, he says, I'm, I'm straining toward what is ahead. So that's the prize, but we still don't know what it is. I do not consider myself, he says, still in verse 13, yet to have taken hold of it. That's the prize. But he still hasn't said what the prize is. Look at verse 12. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's the prize. But we still don't know what it is. He says, not that I have already obtained all this. I think we can say that's the prize, but again, we don't know what it is. So what is the prize? Well, going working all the way back, you see that that prize is equal to all this in verse 12. And what's all this? Well, all this is what Paul has mentioned in the verses before, especially the verses uh, 8 through 11. The prize in those verses is knowing. Paul says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. 
and be found in Him. So this prize that Paul is striving toward is the knowing, the gaining, and the being found in Jesus Christ. So there we come to it. What's Paul's hope? What's the hope of all who are mature? What's your singular and exclusive hope? What's the prize for which you are striving in this life? Does it sound like this? That I may one day know Jesus Christ, gain Him, and be found in Him. Let's just dwell there for a moment. We've already mentioned these verses in a previous sermon, but it's like going back to a a beautiful spot, a beautiful scenic spot. It doesn't matter how many times you go there, you can always enjoy the view. We can linger there without spoiling it one bit. That I may know Christ. Knowing Christ is all about growing in relationship with Jesus Christ. Experiencing more and more who He is and what He's done. With what we know from God's Word about Jesus Christ, you can understand Paul's desire to know Him more. Paul first met Christ on the road to Damascus. And it changed his life. A more dramatic change could hardly be imagined. He fell to his knees in worship and he was called by Jesus Christ. And having met the King of Kings there, then his whole life became oriented to knowing Christ Jesus. To working that out in his life and in the lives of the churches that he ministered to. And preaching the good news that others might know Jesus. Paul hopes that the fullness of that relationship that started on the road to Damascus might reach fullness, might reach consummation, when he'll be able to know fully, to experience fully, to relate fully, and to enjoy fully the work of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is in that struggle that we all live in. The struggle against the old nature. The struggle of the new nature against the old nature. The struggle to have Jesus Christ stronger in His life. And the prize for which He lives is that He might know more what Jesus Christ has done for Him. So that's knowing Christ. Gaining Christ, you remember, is the flip side of losing everything as Paul has done. To gain Christ means that you leave behind all your old, proud, arrogant, self-centered, and self-glorifying ways. You leave them behind. The rubbish. To gain Christ is to take off that old self with its sinfulness and to put on the new, transformed into the image of Christ, self. And finally, much like gaining Christ... Being found in Christ is to move into the sphere of Christ's righteousness and salvation. It's to no longer find your salvation and justification in yourself, in the law, or anywhere else, but to completely rest forever in the accomplished and applied work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That's the substance of Paul's hope. That's the prize 
which he yearns for. But as you know, hope that's not assured is not really much to hope for. I might hope to get a million dollars for my next birthday, but if I have no basis or assurance for such a hope, then really it's just a waste of time. And I'll certainly be, if I hang on to that hope, disappointed on my next birthday. So, what is this great hope of Paul grounded in? These are great and wonderful things to hope for, to yearn after in your life, but how does Paul know that's how it's going to end? How does he know that he's going to finish the race? How does he know that he's going to win that prize? Well, there's two statements in our text that form the basis for Paul's hope, and therefore, for our own. And they can be summarized in one thing, that is, Paul's hope is grounded in the sovereign grace of God. It's grounded not in Paul's own work, efforts, abilities, or anything, but in God and His grace. So the first statement, the first assurance for the prize is in verse 14. And that it is, that is, that it's the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. God has called him forward for this prize. Now, the calling is the calling to salvation, with the initial summons being in view, as we already spoke about. Especially, this summons is present in the preaching of the gospel. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, you're called to submit your life to Jesus Christ and to live for Him. And it's also present in your baptism. In light of the end, it's a calling toward the end. Remember, it's a heavenward call. But it's a call of present service, holiness, and obedience. It's the calling of God. God calls us. And how do you know this calling applies to you? Well, it's given to you in your baptism. It's sealed on you. We read in the baptism form, we are, through baptism, called and obliged to a new obedience to a new obedience in Christ Jesus. And it's continued through the preaching of the Word. God chose you, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our Gospel, that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this hope is assured by God's Word itself by God's promises in His Word and in your baptism. Now, the second statement in which Paul's hope is grounded is in verse 12. That for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, for Paul, as we read in Acts 9, this taking hold of was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But for all of us, it means partnering with Paul in that work of proclaiming the gospel, by joining Him and living it out in our lives, by working it out in our church, by spreading it around in our neighborhoods, by shining it out in our world, and by supporting it through time, effort, and money, to whatever degree we can. We're called to be partners in the gospel, partners in the proclamation of the gospel in this world. That's the task 
But the point is, the point that Paul's making, is that's the task for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Ultimately, it's the Spirit who testifies to your heart, and it's Jesus Christ who so grips you that you become a servant of Him, whether you like it or not. And you are compelled to live in hope. He grabs hold of you, and He holds out the hope of knowing Him, of gaining Him, and of being found in Him so strongly that that is the prize to which you live your life as well. Christ Jesus takes hold of you, and you really can't do anything about it. Those who are mature take such a view of things. Living up to what we've already attained in Jesus Christ, we are to be people marked by hope. As a Christian, hopeful is what you are. You always have the hope. Why? Because you always have Jesus Christ. When Christ takes hold of you, when you're living in the promises of your baptism, then, most assuredly, you have hope. But hope is not something that you, uh, that you possess like a, a piece of crystal, like a shiny diamond or something like that, that you gaze at intently for a time, You ponder about it, you see how nice it looks, and then you put it on the shelf and forget about it. That's not what our hope is like. Rather, our hope is like a prize. That's what Paul says it is. It's a prize toward which we work, toward which our lives are oriented. It's a prize that compels us forward. And so it is that in the second place, we see the manner in which Paul pursues this prize And that is zealously. It might be helpful for us in considering the zeal that Paul has to start with the observation of how doesn't Paul pursue this goal. Look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Paul doesn't pursue this goal misguidedly. He doesn't say, I press on toward some goal Somewhere, the ultimate reason for which I'm not really sure. The point is that zeal is good, but unfocused zeal, misguided zeal, is just a waste of energy. Having energy, having talent, having zest for life is good, but if it's all spent without the goal in mind, or with the wrong goal in mind, then it's all wasted effort. Even more, it becomes dangerous. Paul is using the imagery of a race here. He's using sports imagery. But he's not sports driven. I say this for the benefit of the brothers and sisters in our congregation that struggle with priorities in their lives. And I'm using sports merely as an example because Paul is talking about the world of sports here. Sports are good. I like sports. I think Paul might even like sports. He uses sports imagery a lot in his letters. Nothing wrong with sports. They're good for keeping your mind and your body engaged, for for socializing, even for dealing with stress, for using your physical gifts. Many good things. But doesn't it so often happen that what begins as a useful side activity that helps us stay in shape and stay connected with others, that, that helps us stay focused in mind and body for our job, becomes a goal in itself? 
That becomes the biggest thing in our lives toward which we're straining. And suddenly it really matters if we win that soccer game to the point that it's okay if I swear, yell, curse at the ref, get angry, get morose. Or perhaps not even that, but but suddenly your whole life revolves around that sports schedule. Work is cut short. Families abandoned. Relationships are put on hold until the season's over. What's happened? You're misguided. Your short-term pursuit of staying healthy and, and, and uh, physically and mentally has become your ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal of striving toward knowing Christ, gaining Him and being found in Him has been lost. What we need to have is our ultimate goal inform our short-term goal, like sports. Put the heavenward call of God first in your mind. Put the prize of knowing Christ first as you consider next season's sports schedule. Consider that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you before you take hold of someone else in a fit of rage in the middle of a game. What I'm saying is that we need to press on toward the goal, the one and only goal, and don't be swayed from it. And I've highlighted sports, but we could easily have talked about many other things. Work, family, hobbies, entertainment, whatever. All these things have their place underneath the priority of the prize of knowing, gaining, and being found in Jesus Christ. So Paul doesn't pursue the goal misguidedly. He has the ultimate goal in mind. He has a singular purpose. Well, he doesn't do it absent-mindedly either. Verse 13. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Paul doesn't say, one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, forgetting what's ahead, and forgetting exactly what the purpose was in the first place. Now some of us, as I said in the previous example, pursue our goals single-mindedly, but they're the wrong goals. Now some of us are more like Tommy guns and sawed-off shotguns in our pursuits of goals. We figure if we just fire off in enough directions, we'll hit the right one eventually. This is the way a lot of us live. This is our sort of culture, the postmodern cultural ideal. To be busy with a million things. But it's so easy to lose sight of our goal. We lose focus of the end goal of knowing Christ. Now, piano lessons might be a very good thing. But if it's not necessary for you right now in your service to Jesus Christ, it might have to be put on hold. It may be useful to get a part-time job and the extra money that comes along with that. But if in the long view, it's going to run up against knowing Christ, gaining Him, and being found in Him, then maybe you're better off without a little extra money for now. I'm just saying that there's a lot of different things that seem good, that perhaps are good. But it doesn't mean that you have to pursue each and every one of them. Keep your eyes focused on the goal, on the prize of knowing Christ. But Paul doesn't pursue it misguidedly. He doesn't pursue it absent-mindedly. He also doesn't pursue it lazily. Verse 12, 
Not that I've already obtained all this or already been made perfect, but I press on until I come to a big hill and then I stop. No, of course not. Paul's in the imagery of a race here. Sometimes you're tired. Sometimes you slow down, even to a walk. But to stop or to turn back, is unthinkable. Pursue it energetically with whatever energy you have. Pursue the goal of knowing Christ. How does Paul characterize the zeal with which we're to pursue this prize of, of Christ? Single-mindedly, staying focused on the goal, on the ultimate goal above all the others. Consciously, not getting buried under a hundred other good things, but considering the greater context and purpose of all of our actions. And energetically, after all, it is a race. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take some hard thought, some hard labor. Knowing Christ isn't a lottery that you win. It's a prize toward which you strive in your lives. Through listening to the Gospel, through reflecting on it in your devotions, through spending time in prayer, through serving. It takes effort to know Jesus Christ more. So those who are mature in Christ pursue the goal with zeal. There's one more viewpoint that the mature take in their pursuit of the goal, and that's the realistic view. Almost all commentators find that when Paul says in the verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or already been made perfect, he's countering a false idea that probably existed in the Philippian church. The false idea that perfection is possible. And Paul's saying, I haven't obtained all this or already been made perfect. Perfection isn't possible yet, but I still keep it in mind, keep it in view, and pursue it zealously. Now, I have never met anyone in our church that would argue that we are able to know, to gain, and to be found in Christ perfectly and completely before the end. For whom the struggle against sin is over, and who finds the calling of God in their life to be complete. I've finished God's calling and now I'm done. I'm perfect. I've never met anyone who says that. So that's not an error that we're fighting here. However, it's possible that we can have perfectionistic tendencies. And along with that, you can have contempt for those who don't quite measure up to you. Perhaps you're thinking that after pointing out all these wrong ways of pursuing the goals, that that's how I think about all of you. Well, that's not the case at all. I mention these shortfalls because these are shortfalls that I carry around every day in my life. Perhaps you feel like there are others in church that look down on you, on how far you are in this race as you pursue the prize. But I can assure you that they also struggle against these every day in their lives. They're misguided, absent-minded, lack of energy. Paul's view of Christian life is realistic. I haven't attained all this or been made perfect. Even the Apostle Paul acknowledges his shortfalls and his shortcomings. 
And so there's a word to you here if you feel burdened, if you feel weak by this call toward zeal, toward being single-minded, to do more, be more, try more. That's not how it works. Remember, it doesn't work by human effort. Paul left all that rubbish behind. But also we need to hear the words of Paul here. He hasn't completed all this. And it won't be completed until the last day. The glorious goal is not realized yet. We need to all keep that in mind. As as much as we need to be focused on that goal with singular attention. And it needs to occupy all of our decisions and all of our life. We need to balance ourselves and to realize that Jesus Christ is still at work in us. This is the the view that the mature are to take. Realizing that perhaps we aren't so mature after all. Christ Jesus still has a lot to do in us and through us. It's all part, you see, of staying focused on that prize. Part of running the race is realizing that you aren't at the end yet. You still have a while to go. It's not over. Your knowledge of Christ, your attaining of Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, it's all still growing, still deepening, still working at you in your life. We touched earlier on the point that our hope is grounded in the promises of baptism. Well, the realistic view of our Christian life is also grounded in infant baptism. As we see, as we've been able to see the past few weeks, many times here, that the Lord works with even little children in the advance of His Gospel. Such knowledge should be extremely comforting to us. Having a realistic view on what God is doing also realizes our own weakness and our own continued need for the power of Jesus Christ at work in us. That's all part of growing in knowing Christ. Such helpless babes Christ did embrace while dwelling here below. To us and ours, O God of grace, the same compassion show. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.